Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason, and uh, I'm glad to have you on board with me. We have a massive and very rare thunderstorm or something happening here in Southern California. It's raining like cats and dogs, and uh, our power has flashed on and off a number of times, so we're going to see if this whole show works. We do have some backup uh, capabilities, but uh, that means I might have to go to my iPhone flashlight or something if we go dark in here, even though the backup equipment is working and I'm still broadcasting. We're still recording, so I'm going to stay in the uh, harness. Uh, Come thicker come thin as long as uh, our basic equipment works, all right? And by the way, I'm just incredibly jazzed because I'm just three ways, three days away, let's see, Tuesday, Wednesday, so two days away from flying into Minneapolis for our uh, huge reality event there. Uh, at the moment, this would be mon- this would be Tuesday, midday, 3,495 people signed up. Actually, that's old numbers. We're probably breaching... 4,000 now. I'm sorry, 3,500 now. So, uh, and we expect maybe 3,700 because we know how many people come in late the last week. But if you have been thinking about doing this, now's the time to sign up. Um, go to realityapologetics.com uh, and uh, you can be part of that. It's, I'm, I'm I'm telling you, there's nothing like last year we had 3,300. We, we're going to have four or 500 more this year. And last year was just electric, the excitement there. And the content was pretty fabulous, too. Doesn't matter if we have 5,000 or 500, the content is still what it is. And that's why, uh, that's why I put this on to pass this information on to you, dealing with the issues of, um, of deconstruction and deconversion, all the kinds of challenges associated with it. The team put together a very, very creative way of uh, covering that material. And so that will be this weekend, Friday night, Saturday, uh, Minneapolis at Grace Church, Eden Prairie. You find all the information uh, at uh, realityapologetics.com. So um, take a look. By the way, I wanted to remind you, too, um, that uh, we we have a... F- an opening a standard reason for front office manager. And I'm repeating this because we, we, we really would like to see um, more people um, ask about the job. I mean, we've gotten some things in, but we're, we're looking for somebody that lives in Southern California in the Los Angeles area uh, within driving distance because the front office manager has got to manage the front office. That means you have to be in situ. You got to be there. Um, and there's a lot of administrative duties that are involved, organizational, office support, that kind of thing, customer service, correspondence, supplies, filing systems, uh, some light accounting, etc. And uh, so if you are interested in um, in probing a little bit more, str.org slash careers, str.org slash careers. Now, this is not an appeal for new speakers. We've got a lot of people actually responding. It's very flattering that people would want to help us out in that regard from other parts of the country. It's not who we're canvassing for at the moment. We're canvassing for a front office manager, all right? So um, touch base with us if that's something you're interested in checking out, okay? And uh, this Wednesday, that would be tomorrow, that would be today for you getting your podcast right away uh, at noon, November 9, to the point live. John Noyes will be doing his thing. And uh, let's see, that's on poly- that's 
on all of our platforms, I think. Yeah, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Okay, John's been developing a following, so I encourage you to check him out um, tomorrow, which for you would be today if you're getting it right away. Okay, enough of that. I um, Today is uh, Election Day, and by the time you get this, the election results will be in. I'm not going to talk about any political issues directly, actually no political issues, but a cultural, ethical issue, but indirectly for a different reason than the issue itself. It has to do with transgender operations and uh, what the political climate, or particularly the election year, month, day climate, always uh, draws my attention to is the way language is used to distort uh, truth. And, of course, this is the silly season, election season, and you've got lots of crazy stuff going on and, uh, and lots of rhetoric that is used to twist and distort for the sake of persuasion regarding a certain view. Now, I use rhetoric, uh, but not for that purpose. I'm not looking to distort the facts or distort the truth. I am trying to use persuasive style and communication, whether spoken or written, in order to make the truth more obvious, okay? Not to veil the truth, not to make falsehood look attractive, okay? Um, And so since I am especially sensitized to this, and not just me, but I, I want you to be sensitive to it as well, insofar as you're part of our community, and you are listening to things, you, not just from us, but from others, and reading things broadly in our culture, that you be careful to assess based on the, 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 the basic information and the factual information, and are not steered awry based on rhetorical appeals. And uh, since this is my one of my disciplines that I traffic in, I'm particularly sensitive to it, and can see things coming uh, from far off. In other words, my alerts are are all turned on. I'm at high sensitivity to this kind of thing. So with that in mind, I want to uh, read a short piece to you. Um, and this is about John Johns Hopkins Hospital, which is the hospital that first pioneered transgender operations, um, many years ago, and then under the influence of the, I think, the chief of psychiatry there, Paul McHugh, um, in 1979 halted their surgeries. That's a long time ago. But now have uh, renewed that, okay? And the piece I'm reading actually is from 2017, so it's five years old, uh, and it's from the American Bar Association, and it's it's talking about this decision uh, to initiate the surgeries once again, and thanks to somebody uh, on our, you know, in our listening audience, I was talking about this, and it was giving outdated information. I said they don't do these things anymore, thankfully, and now they're back at it, and uh, that's what this piece is about. And they sent the link, and so now I know. Okay, so thank you for that correction. Um, but what I want you to see here is, I just want you to see some of the smoke and mirrors so that you can keep that in mind when you are making your own assessments about things. Now, when people use smoke and mirrors, it doesn't mean that they are 
that their views are false or that their um or that their their facts are being maligned necessarily but it's always a, a it's it's an alert to me when certain rhetorical techniques are used because they often seem to be used in place of fair even-handed reasonable arguments or points <clears throat> and so people use resort to a kind of tricksterism verbal slate of hand in order to make their point of view seem more appealing than it may actually be and so the alert isn't so that when you hear these things that oh you know someone's lying the alert here is that when you hear these things be careful because they may be they may be twisting or distorting or corrupting or in some way maligning in such a way that you are making your decision based on the verbal slate of hand and not on the sound information uh, itself. Okay, so with that in mind, I'm just going to read some of this and point some things out. Okay, uh, the headlines reads, the headline reads, <laughs> Johns Hopkins Hospital opens Center for Transgender Health. Okay, let me just pause for a moment. This is written by Mark Hamby, by the way, April 15, 2017, the ABA. Transgender health. Transgender is not a disease, just like pregnancy is not a disease. So pregnancy, abortion being health care for pregnancy, seems odd because it's not a disease. And uh, abortion doesn't help the health of the mother. It doesn't help the health of the baby. So it seems odd to call abortion health care. Okay. Now, by parallel to that point, and I hope you see that point, that's one of those distortions. By parallel, here we have a headline that talks about transgender health. But being transgender is not a sickness. And there aren't any health concerns that are, in a certain sense, native to transgender people, people who who uh, believe they're a different sex than what their body is. Okay, now I guess if you transition, and the transition entails surgery, well then there are health concerns about surgery, but those are health concerns about surgery as such. Any surgery has health considerations. It isn't transgender health that's the issue here as if there are special health concerns to transgenders. And if if you don't have the right political view about this, or moral view about this, that somehow you're denying health care to transgenders. So there's just, I'm just telling you the alert that pops up in my mind and the question that occurs to me when I read the headline, Johns Hopkins Hospital Opens Center for Transgender Health. Okay. Here's the piece. After nearly 40 years, Johns Hopkins Hospital has officially reversed its policy on transgender health. Now, the policy, it seems to me, is a policy about transgender operations. But notice how this is characterized as transgender health. There we go. And, quote now, so someone else is being cited here, is moving forward to take care of transgender people in a supportive, affirming way that's grounded in evidence-based medicine, close quote. Okay, evidence-based medicine. Now, that sounds very official, very scientific. But what does evidence-based medicine have to do with transgender health? What, what, tr transgender people 
and, and I'm just not disparaging them at all. I'm just asking the questions about this. This is a mental. Um, it's a it's a it's a mental frame of mind. It's a mental awareness. The in transgender people, the body is working just fine. Right. So so how is transgender health grounded in evidence based? Medicine, I would imagine evidence has to do with something that relates to empirical evidence, medical evidence, but the medical evidence, which has to do with the physical body, is that the physical body is just fine, which is one of the reasons that Paul McHugh, chief of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins back in 1979, said, we're not going to do these operations anymore because we're mutilating perfectly good bodies. Okay. In any event, now we know where this quote comes from. It's in the next sentence. This is according to Paula Nira, the clinical program director for the new John Hopkins Center for Transgender Health. Nira, a former naval officer, a lawyer, and an advocate, left the military to transition from male to female. Okay, so now we know that this statement about evidence-based medicine is coming from somebody who has, uh, who has a an agenda. Now, having an agenda isn't wrong in itself, but it ought to alert us to when there might be wording that might, um, you know, I used the phrase, phrase uh, slate of hand just a bit ago, might be slate of hand. So I don't know what gender-based medicine is, I'm sorry, evidence-based medicine is regarding Gender, transgender health, but in any event, this is from Paula Nira, who is someone who's advocating regarding transgender uh, operations, and so, okay, well, that is a whole question mark in my mind. Okay, a little history, the article continues. In the early 1960s, Johns Hopkins was in the forefront of gender identity science. Really? Gender identity science, this is another phrase, science. Science has to do with empirical stuff, right? Like the physical body. Gender identity isn't part of that. So why is it called science? Okay, another red flag. And its Baltimore Hospital was the site of the nation's first gender affirmation surgery. Okay, uh, and then they put in parentheses, then, sec, change of sex operation. Notice the change of the language. It was then called change of sex operation. Now they call it, in this article here, gender affirmation surgery. Okay, Look at the words that are being used. This is 1966. Hopkins halted surgeries in 1979 while Paul McHugh was chief of psychiatry. McHugh believed that by conducting surgeries, open quote, Hopkins was fundamentally cooperating with a mental illness, close quote, concurring with the findings of a study by John Meyer, who ran the hospital's sexual behaviors consultation unit. Meyer hypothesized that sex change surgery conveys, quote, no objective advantage in terms of social rehabilitation, close quote. Both McHugh and Meyer remain associated with Hopkins, although McHugh, McHugh's tenure as head of psychiatry ended in 2001. Now, notice what they're doing. They're, they're giving their professional opinion as psychiatrists. This is not helpful. This is a mental illness. And you're cooperating with the mental illness, they claim, and um, it doesn't help, gives no objective advantage in terms of social rehabilitation. Okay? Background. 
Next paragraph. As of July 2016, in a letter to the LGBT community, Hopkins announced plans for the Trans Center of Transgender Health. Then in October, the former chief of psychiatry co-authored a report with a Hopkins scholar in residence contending that neither sexual orientation nor gender identity are biologically determined. Okay, pause there. Um, so now he, now there's a, a new report, same guy, same team, psychiatry team, and they're just pointing out, by the way, this none of this has anything to do with the physical body. It doesn't have to do with genetics. Neither sexual orientation nor gender identity are biologically determined. This is obviously true. But it's not politically correct. The piece goes on. The report was published in a conservative publication. Why does it matter where it's published? It only matters if it's a good report or not, if it's reliable information from people who know what they're talking about. Why poison the well by calling this a conservative publication? That is the New Atlantis. I'm not familiar with it, by the way, but nevertheless, there's another red flag. McHugh's name was also in an amicus brief opposing the case of Gavin Grimm, the transgender Virginia student, and McHugh has successfully lobbied to keep gender reassignment surgery from becoming a Medicare benef uh, benefit. So now you've got McHugh, former um, head of psychiatry, chief of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, who's continuing on with his same opinion and campaigning regarding this issue, saying this is not helping anyone. That's his view. Okay, great. Now, is it view right or is it wrong? Well, that's that's uh, he's qualified to talk about this. But anyway, in response to the gaining notoriety of the report. Now, notoriety is a word that means you're famous for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Billy the Kid was notorious because he was a famous criminal, you know. Uh, that's what n notorious doesn't mean famous. It means famous for bad things. In response to the gaining notoriety, another red flag here, of the report in conservative media, why, did, why does that need to be mentioned again? Tonia Potiat, an epidemiologist at Hopkins and an expert on transgender issues, okay, another expert, and colleagues at the Johns Hopkins Bloomingburg, I'm sorry, Bloomberg School of Public Health, denounced the report. Oh, okay. Wonder why? They don't say. On what grounds? I wrote in the margin here. What's wrong with the report? It was just denounced. Okay. Subsequently, the article continues, more than 600 students, faculty members, interns, alumni, and others at the medical school also signed a petition calling on Hopkins to disavow the paper and to continue with developing the center. Okay. Once again, on what grounds? What was wrong with the assessment that that uh, McHugh gave in calling for a halt to these activities? It doesn't say. What you have is 600 students, faculty members, interns, alumni, and others at the medical school signing a petition. The hospital has continued developing the Johns Hopkins Center for Transgender Health and expects the center to be fully operational this summer. So, in other words, they didn't listen to McHugh. They listened to, uh, or at least they continued their plans, which were supported by the 600 students, faculty members, interns, etc., that signed a petition. 
never telling what grounds that McHugh should be disavowed. In response to the notoriety, once again, is that the third time or the second time that they've used it? Second time they've used the same word. Notoriety of McHugh's report and the negative publicity. Hmm. The hospital has stated that it strongly and unambiguously supports the LGBT community. Okay, now it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's clear now the hospital's caved in to the LGBT community. It doesn't say that they agree with whatever scientific evidence or evidence-based medicine that was produced by those objectors that McHugh and company were mistaken about trans. This is all politics, is my point. An appropriate point for today, Election Day. This is all politics under the guise of medicine. And you can see it all through the article. Um, it does end on a somewhat positive note. It says that the Johns Hopkins Center is unambiguously supportive of the LGBT community, but acknowledges the right of individuals associated with Hopkins to express views contrary to its official policy. So they toss dissenters a bone. Okay, we'll take it. I just read this because, I mean, it's an old article, but it's characteristic of the dynamic, of the twisting of, uh, of language to make one view look good and another view look bad. Okay? Um, the psychiatrists make the obvious points. That seems to be consistent with their discipline and common sense. And then there's a hue and cry from the other side, a community, a group of people of all sorts that cry foul, demand that the report be disavowed, and move ahead with the plan. And the result is we are sensitive and supportive of the community. What happened to scientific facts? That isn't what they said. They didn't say we're supportive of the scientific evidence, which is ABCD, that supports our view. No, they are going along with the community that's leaning on them. It's all politics, okay? Smoke and mirrors, all right? Keep your eyes open. This is just one example. There's a, a host of other issues. And by the way, not just in secular culture, but also in, in, within theological circles, you see this kind of thing happening. Okay, so be aware of those moves, and then have your guard up. Try to read the material fairly. Okay, these are I, I, I can't make an assessment really on this whole issue based on this article because there's only the, the, the objectors that are cited here, there's nothing that's cited in their behalf except for that they're vehemently objecting and are claiming that their view is evidence-based medicine, but there's no evidence of such a thing. Maybe it can be forthcoming, but I've not seen it. It does seem that their view flies in the face of common sense and sound psychiatry, especially since it's obvious, as McHugh points out, that neither sexual orientation nor gender identity are biologically determined. Okay.
Uh, let's take a break, and then we got some callers here, and we'll uh, be back with them in just a moment. Stay with us. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, Greg Kokel here, back with you. I'm Stan Reason, giving you a piece of my mind, as I, I uh, usually try to do uh, every Tuesday from 4 until 6. You're welcome to call in. Uh, during that time, eight, that would be 4 until 6 PT, Pacific time, regular Pacific time. We're off the daylight thing. 855-243-9975. That's 8 Five five two four three nine nine seven five. We got Tim in Naperville, Illinois, who has called that number. And Tim, did we talk to you last week? Yeah, I did call in last week. Yeah, because I was going to say, oh, Naperville. I I used to live right yeah. close to there, but I already told <laughs> yeah. you that. Yeah, okay. Right, exactly. Uh, glad, glad to have you back on board again. Thank you for calling. Okay, well, thanks for having me. Um, so my question today, a lot of times when people are going through struggling times and uh, difficult periods in their life and maybe they lose their job or they've got a struggling business or, you know, a mm-hmm. relationship, relationship has failed or, you know, something like that. Um, you always hear other Christians will say, well, you got to give this up to the Lord. You got to, mm-hmm. you know, let the Lord take this, you know, this is not something you can do on your own and, you know, just turn it over to the Lord and he'll, he'll guide you. He's got a plan for you. And, 
he's going to take care of this. So you, you need to stop trying to fix this by yourself and just turn it over to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I'm struggling to know a, what that really means and B, what would that look like in practice mm-hmm. if, if someone were to do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, um, I'm glad you called about this because um, this phrase can mean a, a number of different things depending on who's saying it, but you characterize it right towards the end, like stop trying to fix this by yourself. And um, there, there is a, an understanding of um, sanctification that comes out of the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, called the Holiness Movement, and it's captured or characterized by phrase like, all of God and none of me. Okay? You do it all. I'm not—I don't want myself in this at all. And and you have people that are well-meaning, but turn out to be, I think, inappropriately pietistic here, um, that say these kinds of things. And so, like when you say, hey, I really appreciated, you know, what you said, or the talk you gave, or the preaching, whatever, and they say, it was not me, it was it's none of me, it's all the Lord. Well, I thought I saw your lips moving, kind of thing. You know, wait a minute. <laughs> so there is an, there, but this is the confusion. So this is where I'm going to take exception with that view, and then speak to the question. And that is, um, um, I, I, I do not think that the Bible teaches all of God, none of me. Um, Paul says, there's nothing that good that dwells within me. That is in my flesh. That's in Romans chapter 7. It says, the flesh, that's, there's no good. But the human self made in the image of God has worth and value and makes a contribution. And the fact is, <clears throat> this is inferred um obviously from the nature of, uh, from the teachings of New Testament especially, that we are told to do particular things because God wants us to do particular things to accomplish particular ends, okay? And there's all kinds of stuff that's in the text there that is telling us to do stuff. So why is the text telling us to do stuff when we have a view of sanctification that says it's all of God and none of me? Sometimes it's characterized as the exchange life, you know, I live, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Now, this is from Galatians. It's a very important verse. But if the way a person is reading that is that there is no work that they're supposed to be doing, they have no legitimate place. They're just kind of floating along and flowing along. Then I think they're misreading Paul's intention because there's so many other places where we're (laughs) told to do particular things relative to kingdom work, okay? Act a certain way, talk a certain way, be a certain way, etc. These are things that are on us. So the way I have characterized this, um, to make it kind of handy, there's a pedagogy here, uh, handiness to the way of looking at it, is 100% God and 100% me. 100% God and 100% me. So the point is that there's a partnership that we have with God, when we are seeking to accomplish things. God plays a role, and we play a role. God is 100% responsible for the role He plays, and it's essential. And we are 100% responsible for the role we play, and that is also essential. And by the way, the percentage, the 100% that we have is not 0% of anything. It's 100% of our side, and that's a big part. So we do our part, and God does His part. Now, I know that God is good for his part, all right? Yeah. So therefore, what I have to do is focus on 
me being faithful to my part. Okay, so okay now with that that like little paradigm there in place, let's talk about this um, this point. If somebody's saying stop trying to fix this by yourself, I'm not sure what they mean. Um, I am trying to fix it, but maybe I'm trying to fix it in an inappropriate fashion, and so I'm doing something that's inconsistent with the way God wants to do it. So I'm trying to fix it on myself. That means apart from his appropriate means, maybe that's it. Okay. You're trying to get back, you know, this is a, the way you're acting in this relationship to heal the relationship is, is not sound. You're returning evil for evil. That's not God's way. Okay. So that might be an application there. You got to stop returning evil for evil if you want this relationship to be healed. Okay. So they might mean that that what you're doing is just wrong. And you're trying, you're doing the wrong thing instead of the right thing to solve the problem. And therefore, you're not doing it God's way. Uh, they might mean, um, stop trying to fix it at all. This, they might mean, you, you, you don't have the ability to fix this. This is out of your hands. And it may be the nature of the circumstance, it is out of our hands. And so we can't keep doing that. Um, that which we can't accomplish. So we may have a loved one, I think of people in my own family, you know, who don't know the Lord. Okay, now, um, I have two roots. Um, I could try to convince them of my belief, or I can, co- in, I can try to convince them of my love. Now, both roots are legitimate depending on the relationship. Sometimes the relationship is such that convincing that person of your love is the thing that needs to be done right now. Mm-hmm. So so that means the conviction, the convincing of the truth of the gospel or whatever, it, it may not be on the table for me. And so I've got to say, oh, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go for this other thing. This other thing is in my control. I can be loving even if I can't be convincing of truth, I can still be, I can manifest an appropriate love for this individual in my life. So that, so notice that how one applies this, this, this piece of advice depends a lot on the circumstances. Okay. Um, I I had a friend um, who's actually a very well-known, he's got a missions, an unbelievable enterprise in India, missions organization. And, um, he gave me a piece of advice once that I actually wrote down. He sent it to me. It was, I didn't write it. He sent it to me. <clears throat> and I said, uh, and, and he was encouraging me to be this, love the way God loves, you know, uh, forgive the way God forgives, provide for the way God provides, and then trust God to do what you are not able to do. So this is another aspect of it. If a person is saying, it's all of God, none of me, I think that's a flawed understanding of sanctification. But if what they're saying is there's some things that you can't do no matter how hard you try, do the thing you can do that's in your sphere. Let God do only the things that God himself can do. And God is the one who's responsible for changing other people's hearts and minds, ultimately. And so if you're in a, in a relationship, say, that's just whatever, a family relationship, a marriage, children, or something that's just not going well, there's a limited amount of things that can be done to uh, to improve the circumstances. We do that, 
And then we have to trust God to do the things that only God can do. And sometimes that's really great advice, just like my friend gave me. you got to trust God to do that thing that only He can do. And I read this every single week. And I almost know it by heart, because I, I, and I, when I read it, I don't read it surreptitiously. I read it slowly, and I focus on the words. Love the way, keep loving the way God loves. Keep providing the way God provides. Keep forgiving the way God forgives. Keep letting, you know, keep, let the Lord speak and do what you can't do. Now, that's, I think, the heart of the best way to understand um, this idea of of uh, giving it to the Lord. That means acknowledging that which is not within my ability to change, but it is within God's ability, and, and in a sense, acknowledge that, give that to Him, not carry the burden that I've got to change this. No, I'm going to relax and trust God to change it. There are things I can do. It says in First Peter, the end of chapter 4, great, I mean, a I've read this so many times and reflected on it. Let him who suffers according to the will of God entrust himself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When we get in a tough situation, it's painful, and we're suffering. You know, it may be persecution by non-Christians. It may be... ill treatment by Christians, those that we love, family members, whatever. It's it's our lot in the moment. What do we do? We entrust ourselves to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So we have a part, God has a part. And I think that's the best way to understand that, though I don't know all the time what an individual means, specifically when they said, give it to the Lord. The most charitable read is that one, and I think that's one that's consistent with sound theology. Yeah, okay. So I'm, I'm following, you know, most of this and understand what you're saying, um, but kind of specifically, because I'm, I'm going through a lot of hardship right now. Mm. Um, I've got a business that's really struggling. I've got some financial issues, and... Um, recently, you know, lost a long-term relationship mm. that I was involved in mm. with a woman. I'm sorry. And, you know, just a lot of things hit me at once. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff I've been told is that, you know, Tim, you you can't fix all this. You've got to give this over to the Lord. You've got to let him take care of you and, you know, this kind of thing. And it's hard for me to know, you know, how to do that. What is what does that look like? How to, you know, because obviously, let's say starting with my business, okay, I don't think it means I sit back and wait for the Lord to bring me customers, right? <laughs> you know, and I do nothing. And you know, with finances, it doesn't mean I go, don't go out and try to do things where perhaps I could earn more money and mm-hmm. you know help make ends meet or something. Um, and you know, and then well, this is my concern it, with this this approach. And, and that is, it encourages an inappropriate passivity. It's bad theology that encourages an inappropriate passivity. In your case, in your business. So uh, here's the way I would, if I were to say, Tim, I know it's hard. Let's give this to the Lord. And what mm-hmm. I mean is, let's acknowledge that God is sovereign first, that He is allowing the circumstance in your life 
and that he is in control of it for some purpose. Okay? God is there. He is with you. Let him help. Um, trust him. Entrust the burden to him. I mean, this is language that's sometimes hard to um, make reify or make concrete. But nevertheless, I mean, there's a sense of, okay, let's just acknowledge that God's in this, that God's with you. Okay, now, what are the, con- what are the specific practical things you could do to improve your business? There's th- mm-hmm. That's on your side of the ledger. So yeah. we're going to pursue those kinds of things while we are uh, uh, being consciously aware of God is with us. And even though things are hard, he's there with us, and he is he is there to work for us, though we don't know what exactly it is he's going to do. And this is where we can pray for him to do particular things. To me, the relationship motif here um, is, is, a, is a great um, area to be understanding how this works, because you're talking about business, and you also had a relationship, but a lot of people are in relationships that are hard, and, and I've been in that circumstance before, and this is where it's most familiar to me. So I have to think, this relationship isn't the way it needs to be. This is hard. This is painful. It's difficult. What do I do? Well, I'm going to pray like crazy, okay? And then I'm going to say, God, you know what's going on. You're going to have to do what I can't do to to rectify this. I'm going to have to just trust you to do what I can't do. But these things that I can do, I'm going to do them. I'm going to ask you to help me to do them well. So there's a, a package of things that are going on there. Does that make sense okay. to you? Yeah. So is it, in, in terms of this giving it over to the Lord or trusting in the Lord that he will take care of you, is it really just sort of a mental shift that you sort of release yourself of the burden of worrying about it and stressing over it and you you trust that God's in control and you know that aspect and then as you've done that then do the things that you're supposed to try to do to you well, know the better sim- your situation yes the simple answer is yes of course but it's not simple to do yeah <laughs> okay as paul says yeah. in philippians what for be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. All those are important, by the way. Thank you, Lord. When I get, before I go to bed, I take a knee. And that's when I start, I thank God for the day. And I thank God for the challenges of the day and the hardships of the day. And I thank God for getting me through the day. You know? So, so uh, with thanksgiving, make your request unto the Lord. And, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that verse, okay, because right following it is another one that says, whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and of good repute, let your mind dwell on these things. I think these are all packaged together. Experience of the peace of God and the hardship there is not just a mechanistic thing, though. It isn't like, okay, do A, do B, and then bingo, you feel peaceful. I think this is part of growing and living before God in trust and confidence in Him. So I'm going to do what it says there. I'm going to try to pray, not be anxious, but pray. But it doesn't mean I'm going to always be successful and not be anxious. And then the peace that surpasses all comprehension is going to guard my heart. So it happens sometimes, and other times it doesn't, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a herky-jerky affair. I mean, if I were to be perfectly honest about this, herky-jerky. And then the same thing with, let, you know, whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, let your mind... If there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on, on these things. Paul says, 
that's all part of the process, and that's a discipline. In other words, you have to learn how to do that effectively, and it's not easy. It's governing your thoughts, taking your thoughts captive after a fashion. So um, uh, what I'm saying is what you said is right, but it's not just like snapping your fingers and flipping a switch. We do these things over time because these are the right things to do, and we learn to trust in the Lord in the process. And like I said, it's a herky-jerky affair, and it's not tidy, and we are going to be working on this until the day we die. Yeah. Yeah, and where where I struggle is that, you know, it's one thing to trust God, and there's many things that we've got promises of that He, you know, will not abandon us and that He right. will use things for our good and right. that kind of stuff. But you know, I, I'm not promised a successful business. I'm not That's promised right. fi- financial success. I'm not promised a wonderful relationship with a woman or a wife even, you know. That's um, right. So, you know, he, he, you know, I want these things, but that it's hard for me to trust God for those things because that's not promised to me. No, well, you, the trusting God in those things isn't trusting God will give you those things. Yeah. But it's trusting God in the midst of the need and the hardship and the difficulty. And you're absolutely right on all of those things. None of those things are promised. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, God is going to restore that relationship. I say, how do you know that? Right. Here's what we know. Um, like the person who was asking about the healing of his son, the father, if you're able, you know, well, and that's, mm-hmm. that's not the one I want to use, uh, because that was a reflection of lack of—it uh, was uncertainty. And Jesus said, if I'm able, <laughs> yeah, I'm able. Okay, the one I'm thinking of is, if you're willing, if you're yeah. willing, you can restore my sight. Now, that's me. I know that if God is willing, he can do all kinds of stuff. I don't know in his sovereign purposes in this particular circumstance if he's willing or not. But I do know that James says, you have not because you ask not. And so it will never be the case in these things that are precious and important to me that that uh, that that anyone will be able to say, including God, that I have not because I've asked not. That's not right. going to be the problem. I'm going to ask, and if you're willing, Lord, I know you could do this, if you're willing. I don't know if you're willing, but I'm asking you to do it. That's my prayer. And in the meantime, I know there's some other things i got to be doing, mm-hmm. all right, yeah. regarding yeah. the circumstance that are the right approaches, the right things to do. And this is where I'm going to spend my emotional capital, and that is doing what's right. Not easy to do, especially when your heart's involved. But mm-hmm. that's that's where we maneuver. But so we're doing what's right with an attitude, okay, God, if you're willing, you can change this, but I'm trusting in you. In other words, if you're not willing, that's okay. I, I, I trust the decision that you're making not to change the circumstances, because I believe, and this is, I mean, I'm just saying how it works, but it's not always easy to traffic in this, because I believe that your choice for me in this hard thing, is for my good, even though I don't understand it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Now, I can say in my own life, and uh, I'm just looking at the clock here, so no other callers at the moment, so we can stretch this out a little bit, but I'll, I'll tell you quite 
and candidly, and I haven't talked about this much, and I don't want to give too much detail, but it, there was a time in my life where um, I needed some significant discipline in my <laughs> life, all right? Yeah. And it yeah. wasn't because I was, like, in this gross sin or anything like that. I, I mean, I don't want people to try to imagine, what was he doing? It was, it was, a, it was more a, a more broad-based character development. Let me just put it that way. And I just was not where I just needed, I, I needed a lot of work. Okay, and this was early on in my professional uh, ministry, which was a long time ago. Okay, so um, I don't mean when I started stand the reason; I mean long before that. The, but there was an incredible hardship that came into my life, and I won't get into details about it. But it, it it lasted for a couple of years. It was incredible hardship and uh, agonizing for me. And I remember talking with my brother, Mark, who was a pastor. Well, he wasn't a pastor at the time. We were both carpenters at the time. And and we were working together on our job. And I said, when is it? I just broke down and started weeping. When is this going to end? When is this going to end? And he was very encouraging. And it's this, this too shall pass kind of thing, which it did. But I realized that it it ended in a very it it, <laughs> it was a very painful conclusion. And it took me a lot of time to get out of that rut that the pain caused. When I came out on the other side, okay, when I came out on the other side, regarding this issue that I was just referring to, I was a different person. I was a different person. And I knew it deep in my heart. I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to draw attention to myself on this, but it was I just realized that there had been significant change. What I did not know about was things like radio, books, stand to reason, now 29 years. I had no idea about any of that. However, yeah. what is really clear to me now is that that period of chastisement was a preparation for the productivity that I've seen the last 29 years in all these different areas that God has accomplished um, in partnership with me, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, none of this would have happened without God's partnership, but I had a role to play, and God prepared me for the role. And it was a very painful preparation. But it, that particular period of discipline came to an end. Mm-hmm. There have been other periods since then, I'm just saying. It's just yeah. like, now I arrived, no way. <laughs> but yeah. I, 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 I say this because when I look back on my own life and I see these periods, I, I, I think back on that specific set of circumstances. I, it was in another millennium, is the best way to put it now. It was in the 1900s, way back then, you know, <laughs> in a different century. But these, I, it's so clear to me now the good that God intended for that painful, difficult, hard set of circumstances. And that good, I now have visibility of. And so it helps me to, when I face new periods of chastisement, when I'm asking myself, what the heck is this all about? What's going on here? I want this to be over yesterday, okay? I'm reminded, well, there was a time like this in the past, and you saw, Greg, how God used that for tremendous good in your life. And that helps me to be trusting, have a trusting attitude during the times that I experience new discipline from the Lord. And um, 
Hebrews 12 talks about this, that God disciplines every child that he receives. In fact, he uses the word scourges. That's like whips, right? But he does it because he loves us. He is a true father. A, an illegitimate child, the uh, maybe I said Paul, but it's the writer of Hebrews. It wasn't Paul, but whoever wrote Hebrews uh, says that, 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 that it is an act of love that God disciplines us for our good. It's a wonderful passage, and I reflect on it frequently. Um, but uh, because I have occasion to, <laughs> just like m- most Christians, like yourself, Tim, walking with Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ over time, over time, over long periods of time, as God works in our heart. And the more he allows us to see, in a sense, the, the, the fruit of the discipline of a particular period of time, uh, the more I think it, it we are confirmed in his trustworthiness so that we can bank on that when we hit the next trouble. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it doesn't—here's it, another thing, and this is not meant to be discouraging, but it's just meant to say it like it is. It doesn't get easier. I've heard—this is true in my own life, and it's been true— I've heard many, many other people who I really uh, respect. Um, I've seen happen. You know, this, that it, it, we we just end up facing bigger challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they just keep coming our way. And I mean, I'm not saying we don't have seasons of relief and goodwill with all people and all that. You know, there yeah. are seasons of that, but we can't rest on that uh, because we're in a struggle, right? The world, the flesh, yeah. and the devil. We're, in a, we're behind enemy lines, and so we're getting flack from the enemy uh, in a, a myriad of different ways. So there's a battle that's on, and this is why Paul says, you know, stand firm, act like men, you know. Um, and uh, when we have difficult times, that's what, that's what we hear. Let's man up. Okay, let's, let's, let's rise to the occasion— and face the music and be strong. I mean, I don't know what any else other way to say it. Sometimes I tell my daughters, "Hey, man up." <laughs> <laughs> or there was actually a of a, a, a T-shirt or um, how did it go? It said something about, or it was a maybe a sticker somewhere. I took a picture of it, and it just said, "Put on your big girl panties and deal with it." I think that's what it said. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what I say instead of man up to my girls now, but uh, I, it, it's life is hard, and um, and then you die. I mean, I've said this many times: life is hard, then you die. But I think if we, I, I don't mean to be dark and morose, but I think if if we understand that, it makes those times so much easier. We just realize we're in in a fight, so let's just you know ride it out and. In the process, we're trusting that God is there with us, you know, and in that sense, we are kind of giving giving it to Him. We're giving it to Him. We're okay in partnership. Okay, Lord, you got to help me. I can't manage this. I can't do this. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your mercy, and I need you to help me in this circumstance. I need you to give me wisdom, and so that's that kind of heave ho back and forth partnership that we have with God. Yeah, and I 
you know, I think I'm kind of in a situation that you described that you went through where I feel like I'm just exhausted and so many different things keep happening. And I'm like, when is this going to end? What is God trying to do to me? Am I, am I not getting something? Am I not learning something? Why does this keep happening? And, you know, how long can I keep going on like this, you know? Well, look at, I just got 30 seconds here, but um, just make a note of Psalm 13. You know, 13 is the unlucky number, right? Okay, so there's your psalm. How long, okay. O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Those are the first two verses of Psalm 13. So you're in good company with your anguish. And uh, and uh, just like David, he ends on a positive note. Check that out. That's worthwhile. Okay, okay buddy. All right, Tim. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Good talking to you. Alrighty. All right, that's it for the hour, my friend. My friends. I know that psalm. I recite it frequently. <laughs> but you got it. It ends on a good note, so check it out. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.